Well, would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we dedicate our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning to be able to open your word together. We don't know in our world how long these days will last. So much is uncertain and in flux, but you are not. You are not uncertain. You are not changing. So help us, Lord, as that song said, help us know Christ. Help us live for Christ. Change us by soaking us, saturating us in the truth of your word. Use us in this day to be a light shining in the darkness that you might be glorified, acknowledged, your kingdom would go forth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning, if you would, to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, and we'll be focusing our attention this morning on verses 14 to 33. Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 33. I want to begin our time as we do from time to time by reading this text for us. It's a rather lengthy section, but I think you'll understand why we're covering it the way we are this morning. Beginning in chapter 15 and verse 14, and concerning you, Paul says to the Roman believers, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points. So as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So for this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know 
And when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Over the past several months, we have, in fact, I was looking this week, since September 15th of last year, we have been returning over and over again to this pressing and needful subject that we have thought about entitled Christian Behavior. So we've been in it for several weeks, how it is that we are to live as Christians. And we have heard from the Apostle Paul in the various contexts in which we have been exhorted of how to exemplify the gospel life, living the gospel each and every day. When we think of the gospel life, we're talking about a life that is identified in Romans 12 and following where we are now as a self-sacrificing, self-offering life, a life that sees itself as a, an offering of God by means of God through the salvation that God brings. It is an outflow then of the gospel's work by the Holy Spirit when he saves a person from sin. And so we have summed it up in this way. It is the living out of salvation every day. The living out of our knowledge of who we are in Jesus Christ by faith every day. It is a life of mind and attitude renovation. Mind and attitude renovation as we are saturated uh, with and applying gospel truth in our lives. It's this continual intake of truth, as Romans 12 says, and this continual saturation of the truth, and then the outworking of that, the applying of those truths in our lives as we submit ourselves to God through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit by means of the saving grace that has been granted to us by faith in Jesus Christ. That's salvation. That's what the Christian life is. It is a walking by faith. That is what we mean when uh, we say gospel living. Gospel living. It is the living out of that faith each and every day. And all of that exhortation began for us back in chapter 12, which we started back in September of last year. And as we learned how it is that we as Christians are at least first to conduct ourselves with other Christians in a general sense, how we are to to interact with one another. We saw that back in the first parts of chapter 12 and following. And then secondly, we came to chapter 13. And chapter 13, we were challenged with how we were to behave in our relationship to the world the world around us, and by God's providence and by God's care and His timing in the day and age in which we live, that has been forefront on our minds, has it not? 
with the world and all that's going on, we have been challenged with how we are to live with the world. And we were challenged in our thinking about how to respond to governing authorities in ways that we have never been challenged. And so also we were to think about our relationship to other non-believers, other unchristian people, those just in general of the world, not simply just the authorities that are placed over us by the hand of God through His sovereign care and providence, but also other non-believers in the world and how we're to respond to them. Then we came to chapter 14. In chapter 14, all of those truths that had previously been taught by Paul in chapter 12 and chapter 13, they were being re-emphasized by him. And we were exhorted to put them into practice in the church. Not just with Christians in general, not just with the world in general, but now in the church, all of the ways that we can fight against the schemes of the devil to destroy unity in the church. The ease at which we start to bicker and backbite and fight with one another over simple little things. Then over the last several weeks, we have been in chapter 15, verses 1 to 13, And the truth of unity was continuing to be highlighted by the Apostle Paul, especially in terms of the relationships between you and I and the temptation of judging one another and their spiritual condition of one another based upon the simple and innocuous and mundane sometimes preferences that we all have. And so by the time you get to chapter 14 and verse 15, I mean, verse 14 of chapter 15, I should say. After being exhorted over and over and over again and seeing all of those lofty goals from chapter 15, chapter 12 on, and all of these places and seeing the places where we fail all the time and seeing these goals that are set before us and seeing the great need for that exhorted truth to be lived out, especially in our day. It's not hard for us to wonder. It's not hard for us in our own hearts and in our own minds, especially in the world in which we live with all of its insanity and all of its craziness that's going on. With all the understanding that we are not just to speak about the gospel, but we are to live the gospel. With all of that, it's not hard to wonder, can it be done? Can it be done? I mean, the question that's being asked in many ways, although maybe not spoken in many evangelical circles is, is the church affecting the world at all? Can it be done? Can change really happen in our world? And we know as Christians, we know as those who love the Word of God and who love the truth of God, we know that by the power of the Spirit, it can be done. It cannot be done on a human level. It cannot be done by the power of humans. That's what I mean. But it can be and is being done by the power of the Spirit. A gospel life can be lived. What does that gospel-driven heart then look like as it's pictured in life? I mean, if we were to wrap up all the things we learned from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 15 and verse 13, what does that look like in a life? What does that look like it is being carried out? Well, praise God that we are going to get some answers to those questions because that is what we see on display by way of example here at the end of Romans. Paul closes out 
this letter by sharing from his own heart, and it shows us what a gospel heart looks like, what a gospel heart looks like in practice. So over the next two Sundays, I want us to discover seven characteristics of a gospel-driven heart. Seven characteristics of a gospel-driven heart. Seven reflections, if you will. Seven outcomes of a heart that is driven by the gospel that we see from the life of the Apostle Paul. Oftentimes we come to the book of Romans and you read through the book of Romans and by the time you get to chapter 15 and verse 14 and you begin to read, you think, well, what's the point of all this? Paul's just kind of giving some end words. He's giving some... uh, some end game here to close out the letter, and he's just sharing some travel plans. He's sharing things that are on his heart. But I can assure you that these are not simply end words that we can just pass over all that quickly. We have to look at them because they teach us something from the heart of Paul as God reveals to us all that he has already taught us in the previous chapters. And those things that he is showing us from the heart and life of the Apostle Paul that reveals Paul's love for Jesus Christ and the reaction and reality of Jesus Christ in his own life, this gospel heart in the Apostle Paul are the things that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, these seven characteristics of a gospel-driven heart. The first four are here for us in verses 14 to 33. The second are in chapter 16, the second three. And so, we've reached the end. We have reached the end. The final two messages of our study of the book of Romans. Sad to me, actually. This is our 118th sermon, if you've been counting. 118 essential hours, if you will, walking our way through the book of Romans. And maybe when we are done, we'll just go back to chapter 1 and start all over again. It's hard to leave this book because it's been so enjoyable, so heart-changing, I'm sure, for you. Now, some of you may be saying, no, please don't do that, Pastor. Let's go. Let's move on. And and I get it. I want to move on. We're going to move on. But part of me wants to stay right here. But let's begin this morning to look at these seven characteristics of a gospel-driven heart. What are they? Well, number one is this. Number one is this, the gospel-driven heart, this gospel life being lived out, the heart that's driven by the gospel is a gospel-duty heart, a gospel-duty heart. You notice it here in verses 14 to 16 as Paul begins his final words to these believers that he's writing to in Rome. And he begins by saying, "In concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. And then he defines what that goodness looks like by saying, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. So Paul is saying to them, listen, uh, there's been some things I've written to you. There's been some, in fact, very tough things that I've written to you. I've written very boldly to you on some points. And by means of doing that, I just simply want to stir you up by way of reminder of what is already there in you. What I'm convinced is in you. 
And when we look at this, and when we think about this, and when we think about the heart of the Apostle Paul, and we evaluate the life of the Apostle Paul as he is writing to the believers in Rome, as we think about all that he went through throughout the context of his life when he was miraculously saved on the road to Damascus, what his life accomplished by means of the historical record and all that we see and all that we read about, it seems rather impossible, doesn't it? I mean, you read about the Apostle Paul's life and you think about the world in which he lived, and it seems rather otherly. I mean, it seems like it's impossible for one guy because Paul lived during the rule of the Roman Empire. If you know history at all, you know the Roman Empire was not a sweet place. It was not a place where where you had the freedoms to just come and go as you wished. It was an empire that ruled the world with an iron fist because it was proud in its own heart. Much like any of the ancient rulerships throughout history, they ruled with that way, proud in their own heart saying that no one is better than we've ever been. In fact, we are the best the world has ever got. That's what you hear. Nothing could be seemingly against the Roman Empire, and yet here is Paul. Here is this man, this one man, one little person in the world, no earthly power against such a great empire, and yet his only weapon was the gospel and a gospel life. It's his only weapon. And what's interesting to me is to understand that as you read Paul's words here and you close out what he is saying, you understand what was important to Paul. Because a gospel-driven heart is a gospel-duty heart. A life that is driven by the reality of the salvation that Christ gave is a is a life that is lived with gospel duty no matter the circumstance. In other words, a gospel-driven heart sees life as ministry. That's what a gospel-driven heart does. All of life is a ministry rather than what you might hear some say today that ministry is just a part of life. Notice what Paul says. I've written to you very boldly, verse 15, on some points, so as to remind you again, why? Because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering to them as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles, in other words, what I'm doing on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ might become acceptable, holy, or set apart by the Holy Spirit. Paul's not accepting the the glory for it, as we'll see in just a moment. He's just simply saying, this is my duty. Christ saved me. This is my duty. This is what was impossible, or this is what was important to Paul. So you say, well, what do you mean necessarily by gospel duty? What I mean is that Paul saw his entire life, every aspect of his life, every day of his life, not with the gospel attached to it. It wasn't that Paul was a Christian, and oh, by the way, these other things seem to be attached to his Christian life. No, Paul saw his life as Christianity, as ministry, one in which the gospel life was his duty. Paul 
describes his life in the terms of a priestly duty. You see that there in verse 16. I minister as a priest the gospel of God, as if one, as if he was one serving God in the temple of God. Paul has written to us about the reality of the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation for all who would believe, and the reality that all people need the gospel, that everyone is guilty, chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of Romans. And then he went into the whole reality of how someone is justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and it isn't by works. Abraham was justified by faith, that God justifies the ungodly, that it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And that when you are saved, then then you begin to live out that gospel living in a way that is obedient to Jesus Christ, as we see in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And the reality that there is no condemnation for those who know Jesus Christ. That you are secure in your salvation, that you cannot in any way sin your way out of it. But that in your salvation, you have a desire to live for Jesus Christ. And it is an all-of-life reality. It is an everyday reality. It is a ministry and a desire of your heart. And so by the time you get to chapter 12, Paul begins to list out what that is, right? Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. A life of self-denial. A life of turning away the things of the flesh. It's interesting here in verse 16, the word that Paul uses for the word minister. He says, I, I'm a minister of Christ Jesus. It's the word liturgon. It's, it, it, it's the same root word that we have the word liturgy or, or liturgical. In other words, liturgical liturgy, that, that's just the idea of duty, ministerial duty. The things that ministers do by way of duty. And I bring that up because it's interesting here that Paul uses that as a distinction. As a distinction for who he is in life. Because Paul could have described himself as he describes himself in some of his other letters as a doulos, which is the word for slave. I'm a slave of Christ. Paul could have said that right here. Paul could have used the word diakonos, which is servant, or as we know in the church, deacons. He could have used that because there are other places when he identifies himself as a servant of Christ. But Paul doesn't do that. By the leading of the Holy Spirit, as Paul is penning these words, he describes himself with a word that that shows the reality of duty. In other words, Paul saw himself as one engaged his life as being one that was a ministerial duty before God. And what was that duty? The gospel. The gospel. Sharing the gospel. I am a minister, as I minister as a priest, the gospel of God. You see, sometimes I I, I think we get the idea that if we don't have some kind of formal ministry in the church, as Christians today, we we get this idea that as a Christian, if I'm not formalized, then, then I have no real obligation with the gospel. I have no real obligation. And we start to 
lump upon ourselves the idea that well, we really have no importance. There, there's no importance really because I'm not really in some formal ministry in the church, so, so it's not all that important. And what we do, we, it really doesn't have any effect on the world. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul says, no, no, listen, I'm confident concerning you. I'm convinced that you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Paul's saying, listen, you're able to do what I've done. I've, I've written to you some hard things. I've admonished to you in some big ways. I've spoken very boldly to you on some points to remind you again, but I'm confident you can do that. Why? Not because you're the smartest guy in the class, not because you've been to all the theological schools that the world might offer, even if they're good ones. The fact is, you're a Christian. You're a Christian who has the truth of God, and you can go to the Word of God, and you can speak to one another the truth of the Word of God from the Scriptures. I'm confident you have that. Each and every Christian, beloved, is duty-bound We, as Christians, are duty-bound to and with the gospel. That is simply to say that every one of us who are Christians have a sacred grace given to us by God. We are ministers of Jesus Christ. We are part of the liturgy. We have a duty We have a duty to others to minister the gospel of God. And like Paul, those others, those others that we are ministering to and need to be ministering to are part of our offering to God. Part of our offering to God. Just like Paul equates his ministry, just like the priest who was in the temple, who would go before the altar and offer his offering to God in the temple, that which was to be acceptable to God. Sounds like Romans chapter 12, offer yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice, one that is acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. You see the idea? It's gospel duty. It's gospel duty. That ought to be our mindset. We cannot forget, beloved. We cannot forget. Here we are at the end of Romans. We cannot forget all that we have heard and all that we have learned and and then what we've seen in chapters 12 up to the point of chapter 15 and verse 13 and thinking about all that. And as we look around, we cannot forget that we have an obligation. It is to be our mindset that we have a duty. Everything we do ought to have a goal. The gospel for others for the pleasure of Christ, for the pleasure of God. But Paul says, I want it to be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So this is the first characteristic of a gospel-driven heart. It's a duty-bound heart, a heart that sees its Christianity, sees its life not as an attachment, not as a spoke in the wheel, but the very centrifuge of the wheel itself. Life is about the gospel. Nothing will change our world except that. Nothing will change the heart of man but the gospel. We're not sitting here this morning because somehow we got smart and figured it out and we finally saw that it was logical and to follow Jesus Christ. None of us did that. We were 
dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ came along and opened our eyes. And praise God He did. But every other person needs to know that truth. They need to hear that truth. They need to see that truth in your life. And so a gospel-driven heart sees life as gospel duty. Number two. Number two, the gospel-driven heart is a Christ-glorifying heart. The gospel-driven heart is a Christ-glorifying heart. Notice what the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 17. He says, therefore, in other words, in light of what I just said, in light of this gospel-driven heart, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. I'm not going to presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. You think about the Apostle Paul's life. You cannot help but see how much he accomplished throughout his life the short years that God gave him to go and be a minister of the gospel in his own life, we cannot help but see that he accomplished much. In fact, right here in just these verses, in verses 17 and 19, he mentions three massive things that were results of God saving him. One, the entire group other than Jews... The Gentiles, the ethne, who were not Jews in their ethnicity, began to understand that by way of belief, by way of faith in Jesus Christ, they too could be part of the kingdom of God. In other words, that it wasn't just Jews only again. It wasn't Paul preaching a message of only Jews. No, it was God had a plan, the plan to save a people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And God was accomplishing that through the apostle Paul in many ways. Non-Jews were being saved. The second massive result was this. His ministry was accomplished by signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. The authentication, the verifying of Paul as a Jew who once was a persecutor of the church to those who may have been fearing Paul because of the history of his renown went all over the place as he was persecuting the church. Paul accompanied by signs and wonders. God verifying through miraculous things that the apostle Paul was who he said he was. That God was, in fact, doing what He said. And that's what Paul says. I'm not going to speak about anything except what Christ accomplished through me in the power of signs and wonders. It wasn't me doing it. Paul's not taking credit for it. It wasn't me. It was God doing it. It was the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit accomplishing these things. And notice, notice that the third thing Paul says that I preached from Jerusalem to Elycrium. By the way, that's the Baltic area of our Eastern European area today. The Baltics, what was Yugoslavia and that area, now the Baltic states up there. From Jerusalem all the way to that. That's about 1,400 miles, by the way. Notice what Paul says. From Jerusalem 
and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. A 1,400-mile span where nobody had heard the gospel, Paul says, that's where I went, and everywhere has been touched with that. We have missionaries in the world who barely leave their own homes, sadly. We have other missionaries that are accomplishing much. I remember years ago when I was down in Honduras with our beloved Ed Fitzgerald, and we were, I was down there teaching the regional Bible conference for BMW in Honduras, to which the regional director was. And they, at that time, this was probably 2014, maybe six, seven years ago, 2013. Anyway, they wanted Ed to leave Honduras. Biblical Ministries Worldwide wanted Ed, told me when we were down there, our plan is to have Ed exit this place. I said, why? Why would you want Ed to leave here? They said, because it's been a completely reached area. I said, really? They said, well, yeah, you know, the, he, the gospel's been brought here. People, there's, there's churches all over the place. I said, not evangelical churches. So there's Catholic churches and there's Pentecostal churches and all these other Weird aberrations what they call the gospel, but there isn't good churches. I said, I, I just want you to understand something. First of all, Ed is the missionary sent out by the church. The church is the one who gets to direct that. And so while I appreciate you allowing us to understand what you want, we need to let you know that Ed's not leaving Honduras until we're satisfied it's reached. He was like cold water in his face. Shocked. And I said, I, you know, I don't believe it's reached. There's still places in these mountains where the people haven't heard the gospel. You get Ed's newsletters, you see that. Ed has planted several different churches in the mountains of that region where the gospel was not heard. And Ed is still in Honduras. Because Ed just wants to do what the Lord wants, even though his heart's desire and sometimes wants to go to other places where the gospel hasn't gone. This is like the Apostle Paul. And yet, Paul was able to accomplish much, and Paul takes no credit for it. Verse 17, he says, Though therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. In other words, I'm going to boast a little bit, but I'm not going to boast about me. I'm going to tell you some things that have been accomplished, but I'm going to boast in the things pertaining to God because none of it happens by me. I'm meaningless. I'm nothing. In other words, I don't want to highlight anything except what highlights Christ. That's refreshing, isn't it? That's very refreshing in our me-everything world. It's not what we hear today. Today, it's usually, look what I did. Look what I have accomplished. Look how effective I am. Look at what we are doing. And one friend described it to me years ago. He said, we live in the me monster age. It's all about me. It doesn't matter how little we participate in whatever it is, the tendency is to take the credit. Just go to the sports field. 
Look at in sports, the mundane reality of just playing a sports game. How many people on the playing field in Little League today get a trophy? Everybody. Everybody gets a trophy. Don't worry what you do. Everybody's the same. Don't want to hurt anybody's feelings as if feelings matter. We don't hear that from the gospel-driven heart. We don't hear that from the gospel-driven heart. We don't hear Paul saying, hey, let me tell you about what I did in this area or this area in this part of the world. He's not saying any of that. In fact, the only reason he mentions from Jerusalem to Elycrium in that 1,400-mile span is simply to say, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. It's not about me. It's about Christ. It's about Christ. In fact, we would even say today, we wouldn't be able to stand Paul if he was in the room talking about himself because of all the things that were accomplished by means of Paul, by God's hand. If Paul was a braggart and Paul went around saying, oh, you should have seen how I came crawling out of those stones. You know that pile of stones that were heaped upon me when they drug me out of the city? You should have seen how I came crawling out of that pile of stones. And man, those guys were really amazed. But man, I had the strength to do it. Look at what I did. We'd puke. We'd puke. We wouldn't be able to stand Paul if he said, boy, God sure is, he's probably glad he's got me on the team. No, Paul didn't say that. That's not the gospel-driven heart. The gospel-driven heart says things like what Paul said to the Galatian church in in chapter 6, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what was accomplished through me, because it isn't about me. It's about Christ. And as long as he is exalted, I'm good with that. So that's how it's to be. That's how it's to be with everyone who names the name of Christ. Everyone who is saved by grace, everyone who comes to understand the the depth of their sin and they repent of that sin by the grace of God and they begin to live that life of sacrifice, that life of self-sacrifice before God, that living sacrifice kind of life. The gospel-driven heart is a heart that sees all of life as gospel duty, and it sees all of life whereby God gets all the glory for whatever is accomplished. This is how we are equipped by the Spirit of God. That's why Paul says that. He says it's the Spirit that does it by the power of the Spirit. You notice Paul's equating even his travels to that. I didn't even get to do what I did and accomplish anything that I did because it wasn't me. It was the Spirit who was empowering me all along. That's how we're to live. Number three. Number three, the gospel-driven heart is a heart with gospel vision. The gospel-driven heart is a heart with gospel vision. This is probably the largest section of this section of scripture beginning in verse 20. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it's written, they who had no news of him shall see and they who have not heard shall understand. And so for that reason, I've been often hindered from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whether when, whenever I go to Spain, 
or I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints because Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And they were pleased to do that because they're indebted to them. And then he gives a little commentary on why they're indebted. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them in material things. And so when I finish this, when I put my seal on their fruit, I'll go by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This is a gospel vision heart. Paul had an opportunity-driven heart because Paul was looking always beyond. Paul was never satisfied with where he was in the sense that, okay, there's no more to do. For the gospel-driven heart, there's no retirement in the gospel-driven heart. There may be a place where you rest in the physical-driven heart, but there's no rest in the gospel-driven heart. For Paul, the work was never accomplished because there were still others who needed the gospel. Paul always had this large vision. He always had a gospel vision, and it was to preach where no one had ever preached before, and Spain was that open door. In fact, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he puts it in a very interesting way. You can turn there for a moment if you want, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Of course, the Corinthian believers, even though he had written them and been the father of birthing them, if you will, in the gospel, they were challenging his authority because false teachers had crept in or calling him a fraud. And so Paul is sadly having to defend himself in some of these things. And so in chapter 10, he Beginning at verse 11, he says, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Uh, Paul's simply saying there, listen, I am exactly what I am. What you hear in my letters, is ex- it's not. there's no two-face going on here. What you read about me, what is true of me in present is exactly what I'm saying to you. He says, We're, we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some as those who commend themselves. He says, I'm not doing that. I'm not comparing saying, oh, they're this and they're that. No, I'm just telling you, this is what we are. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. He says, but we'll not boast. Not boast beyond our measure. We'll just boast within our measure of the severe which God apportioned us as a measure to reach even as far as you. In other words, we're not going to boast in the largeness of our ministry. We're not going to boast in the smallness of our ministry. We're not going to be sad about the smallness of it. We're simply going to just boast in God, what God is doing. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. So not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. 
Why? So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. Paul says, we're not going to we're not going to boast in what we've done. All, all, all we're going to do is be thankful for what God is doing and trusting that God is doing something in your heart that you take that gospel duty and extend it even farther. That the ministry from us through you to others is going to be even a greater and greater ministry. It will be enlarged even by you so that we preach the gospel through you to other regions beyond. Not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another Paul says, listen, I'm not going to boast in any of that stuff. I'm just going to boast in Christ. So, Paul was rightly obsessed with a gospel vision. So much so that beginning in verse 24, he shares it with those who are in Rome. He shares with them his gospel vision as to why he hasn't been able to come because his vision takes him to Spain all the way through Rome on his way to Spain. And he shares that vision with them for I I hope to see you in passing, verse 24, and that you'll help me to get there even after I've enjoyed company with you for a while. And even now, I'm not necessarily coming to see you. I'm on my way to Jerusalem because my greater vision is to go to Spain. But I have to go to Jerusalem because... The poor, as we see in Second Corinthians chapter eight, those of Macedonia and Achaia have gave, given out of their lack. They they they've reached down into the even their lack, their poorness, and begged us to be a part of the ministry. And so I have to go, I have to go to Jerusalem, because these dear saints who receive the gospel are indebted to those for whom the gospel came through, i.e., the Jews. And so when I've finished, when I put my seal on their fruits, I'll, I'll go on by way of you to Spain. And when all that's happening, I know that when I come to you, it's going to be in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I know the stamp of approval by God is going to be a part of that. In other words, Paul's entire purpose for writing to the church in Rome was so that when he saw them, they would help him make it to Spain, that they would be part of the gospel vision. Of course, we know Paul never made it to Spain. Some some historians think maybe he did. There's no real evidence of that. The book of Acts tells us that his plan was never accomplished as he desired. Why? Because God had other plans. God had other plans for Paul. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that after he had given the gift to the believers in Jerusalem, he was almost killed by a mob as they were trying to stop him. And he left after he appealed to Caesar. Remember, he appeals, so he leaves under guard, taken to Rome under chains. That's not how Paul saw it going initially. So God was going to bring him to Rome so that he could preach to the rulers of the empire of Rome. God had another plan. That didn't limit the desire of Paul. This is exactly what Proverbs says, isn't it? Man plans his way, but God what? Directs his steps. You set out the gospel vision. Will you have that vision? Others need Christ. I have this, this, this set out goal, this desire Trust it to the Lord. The gospel-driven heart is one with gospel vision. 
is something we cannot forget, beloved. We cannot forget that. We cannot miss that in the life of Paul as we turn the page, if you will, from Romans. There are people in our families. There are people in our workplaces. There are people in our neighborhoods. They all need the gospel. Without a vision, we'll never set out on the journey. An old business cliche that my father used to have in his office when I was a young kid, it said, without a vision, the people perish. Well, that may be true in business, but it's certainly true in the gospel. We have to have a gospel vision. So the gospel heart is a duty-bound heart. The gospel heart is a Christ-glorifying heart. And the gospel heart is a gospel vision heart. And lastly, this morning, the gospel heart is a gospel praying heart. Gospel praying heart. Notice verse 30 through 33. Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Why? So that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. The gospel heart is a praying heart. Why? Because a praying heart knows that without God, without the interaction of God, without the hand of God, nothing is possible. Nothing is accomplished without God doing it. Nothing is truly done. No one is ever saved. No one actually ever hears the gospel without the action of the sovereign hand of God. We don't need to adjust anything. We don't need to modify the gospel. We don't need to soften the offensiveness of the gospel to a dying and lost world. No one will ever hear it without God. We cannot change it to be palatable. Only God does that. Only God massages it into the sin-sick, dark, hardened heart. And so Paul prays. Paul asked for prayer. Notice that he asked for three things. Three things. That I may be delivered. He wants deliverance from those who are disobedient in Judea. Paul says, listen, I know I'm going to a place where people hate the gospel. Uh, I've heard about those things, and I know people don't like me because that's the, I used to be on their team, and now I'm not on their team. In fact, I speak against their team. So pray that God, by His sovereign hand and by His care and providence, will deliver me from those who are disobedient. God did that. We understand that in Acts. God did that through Roman soldiers who took Him to Rome. But also, secondly, pray that what I do for God in the presence of the people might be acceptable to the saints. In other words, I want it to be helpful. I want it to not be a hindrance. I want it to be helpful to the saints who are there. And then third, pray that I can come to you in joy by the will of God 
I want fellowship. I long for fellowship with you. Please understand my heart, Paul's saying, listen, it's not that I don't want to see you. I've wanted to see you for a long time, but my gospel-driven heart has taken me other places. But there's coming a time I pray, and then you pray with me. You, you agonize with me. That's what the word means when strive together. You agonize with me in prayer before God that he'll come and bring me in your presence, and we'll have this sweet, sweet fellowship together. I want to be delivered. I don't want the danger in my own humanity. I don't want that to hinder the gospel. Paul's not saying I'm afraid, right? Philippians says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm not afraid of that. He's just saying, I don't want it to hinder the gospel. I don't want these dangers to be a hindrance to the ministry. Satan hates the truth. Satan wants to bring down the truth. Satan wants to disguise the truth. He wants to hide the truth. And so we need to pray. Pray that God will allow us to be used for him without the hindrances of the world. Deliverance. And so when we say to one another, pray for me, let that be genuine in our heart. Let it be genuine. Let it flow from a gospel heart. And then as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we hear those words, let's respond in such a manner and pray. Pray with a gospel heart. Pray that the gospel work would be acceptable to God and then long for and work to refresh one another in fellowship. True fellowship. Paul, once again, driving at this whole reality of unity among believers. Through the gospel. Through the gospel. Paul's been on this subject since the beginning. It's all about the gospel all about the good news of Jesus Christ. So a gospel-driven heart is a heart that sees life as gospel duty. A duty whereby the gospel is not simply part of life, it is life. But also a gospel-driven heart is a Christ-exalting heart. Doesn't take credit for anything that God's doing. All successes are God's successes. He's the one accomplishing all the things for His glory. God is doing it all so that he receives the glory. And third, a gospel-driven heart is a visionary heart. So look for and plan for giving out the gospel. Look for and plan for each and every day for living the gospel. See the whole world like Christ saw it. Opportunity. Plan to give the gospel. Let God direct your steps. And then finally, a gospel-driven heart is a gospel-praying heart. We need to pray that God would bring about His kingdom in the hearts of people. That's the only hope for mankind. It's the only hope for our world. We need to be gospel people. So let's be a people who pray and live to that end. You know, we live in a day and age where our country and our world is trying to erase history. But God's history will never be erased. It will never be erased. Why? Because each one of us, just like Paul, 
are living examples of the power of the gospel. The gates of hell will never prevail. None of us would be saved today if it were not for what took place in history. None of us would be saved if Jesus Christ had not come to this earth and had not died for sin. None of us will ever erase Jesus Christ. Ever. So live out the gospel heart. We'll we'll get the last three next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that we have learned as we've studied through Romans. Lord, there's a sense in all of us, I think, that we don't want to leave. It's been such a refreshing, refreshing soaking in the reality of how you save and what that means. Thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for accomplishing so much through him that we might know the truth. And Lord, we know there's a trickle-down effect. We have been given the truth and passing it down to others will guard the truth. So help us do that with genuineness, honesty, integrity, trust in you, the full joy of knowing that we are living for you no matter what. Lord, help us not compromise in the smallest of ways so that when things really are tough, we will stand strong. Fulfill in us the truth of a gospel heart for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.